Well, good morning. We're a rowdy bunch this morning. Good fellowship, good time of worship, and it's really good to be together on such a beautiful weekend. Well, as Dan said, we are back in the book of Nehemiah this this morning, and if you want to turn there, we'll be in Nehemiah chapter 10. And as you're turning there, maybe you've heard, I used to hear it all the time, that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Did anybody tell you that? My mom would say that. Maybe your mom would say that over and over again. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I thought I was just being conned into eating breakfast. But it's actually, studies have shown that it's actually true. One study said that those who eat breakfast in the morning eat less throughout the rest of the day. Those who skip breakfast end up eating more and they don't eat as well. Probably because they're trying to make up for that feeling of being hungry. And then this German study says that if you eat breakfast, you'll burn more calories and protein and all of that because the morning is when your body is more actively engaged in burning those resources. So there's lots of studies that say, you know, we should eat breakfast. I'm a breakfast eater. I don't know about you, but for those who do eat breakfast... Um, the traditional bacon and eggs just edges out cold cereal as the number one breakfast item. Now, how many people are bacon and eggs people? Oh, yeah, about 56% if I do my math right. <laughs> how many are cold cereal people? Yeah, I'm cold cereal. It's just, it's just way too fast and convenient. My wife and son are, are eggs people. But uh, I like some of my favorites, Honey Nut Cheerios, Cinnamon Life is probably my favorite, Honey Bunches of Oats, (laughs) woohoo, I like that one. But probably one of my favorites now, RBC, Raisin Bran Crunch, (laughs) I just, I like Raisin Bran Crunch, maybe, maybe you have your favorites, okay, how many of you are just donut people, (laughs) any donut, come on donut people, (laughs) where are you, I know you're out there, you don't want to admit it. Donut people, yeah. Donuts are good too. To compliment a bowl of cereal, maybe. Well, I'm sure you've heard the saying that when it comes to a bacon and egg breakfast, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. Have you heard that? <laughs> Think about that for a minute. The chicken is involved because it lays its eggs and goes about its business doing its life, but the pig... The pig is committed. See, the pig gives his all. He's totally committed. So when it comes to the Christian life, should we be involved or committed? And with this thought in mind, a little hint, the message title this morning is Personal Commitment. And it comes from Nehemiah chapter 10. And the outline has just two simple parts to it. First of all, we're going to look at the people in verses 1 through 27. And yes, it's another long list of Hebrew names. And then and, and chapter 11 and 12 have the same thing. But then we'll get into the pledge in verses 28 through 39. So chapter 10 in Nehemiah won't make much sense at all. If you don't understand what happened in chapters 8 and 9. And so I just want to do a quick recap of what was going on there. 
in chapter 8, the physical work of rebuilding the walls of the city of Jerusalem was completed. And now Nehemiah sets his sights on the spiritual work of restoring worship to the community. And then in chapter 9, they meet together, excuse me, chapter 8, they meet together and the Levites open up the word of God. And it says they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what had been said to them. So they explained the word of God. And they did this day after day for seven days. They'd be there for hour upon hour, hordes of people listening to the word of God. And the result of that was confession. And we saw this last time in chapter 9. And that, that confession, it was in the form of a prayer. And we broke it down into four parts. First of all, the people looked upward. And they worshiped God as the creator of all life. And then they secondly, they looked backward. And they retraced the entire history of the nation of Israel. And they saw that again and again and again, God was faithful and good to their people. And we also saw that this was kind of borne out in the names of God. We saw them represented by the things he did in that text. Names such as these. These. There we go. <laughs> names such as creator, Lord of life, faithful and true, righteous one, compassionate and gracious God, the father of compassion, almighty God, protector, Defender, shield, strong deliverer, God who avenges, shepherd, guide, the way, the light of the world, the lawgiver, the upright one, the bread of life, the spring of living water, the provider, and the sustainer of my soul. We saw these things, not just because God said, this is my name or title, but it is what he did. It's his reputation. And we saw that in the text. So all of these display the character of God. And we saw those clearly in how he treated and responded to Israel. So they looked back and they recounted God's goodness and faithfulness. And then third, they looked inward at themselves. And what they saw really wasn't very pretty. See, they saw that they had been arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey, they refused to listen, they failed to remember, and they rebelled against God. And they would suffer the consequences of this. And the consequences would eventually bring them to this place of repentance and returning to God. And guess what? God would be faithful and forgiving and gracious to them. And they would, be, they would return to his blessing, they would sit under his blessing. And then a little while later, they get fat, dumb, and happy. And they go right back to wandering away from God again. And this cycle went around and around and around in Nehemiah chapter 9. But now, having come from 70 years of, of exile in the nation of their enemies, in Babylon and Persia, now they're finally coming around again. And fourthly, they're looking forward. They're looking forward and they're making a commitment of obedience to God and to his word. And the last verse of chapter 9 says, In view of all this, 
They'll look upward and inward and, and backward. And it says, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And that's where we pick it up this morning in chapter 10. And we're going to look first at the people. And yes, it is, again, a long list of names. Now, if you were here last week, you saw how Ron Karras opened up the word and he, rather than reading the word, he spoke it from memory in like story form. And so with that as my example, I just thought I'd do these names in that way. I'll just go by men. I'm just going <laughs> to read them off. So, no, we're not doing that. I can't. I wouldn't get very far, but we are going to go through them. All scriptures God breathed, right? So fasten your seatbelt. Here we go. 84 names. Those who sealed it. These are the ones who affixed their seal to this commitment, this written commitment to God. Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Milkiah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Maluk, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> Mijamin. It sounds Jamaican, man. <laughs> Doesn't it? We have some people expecting kids. Mijamin. Mijamin. <laughs> I hope you like a jamming too, <laughs> me jamming. I just want to jam with you. <laughs> you know, you got to cut me some slack. The text is a list of Hebrew names, <laughs> okay? I'm singing to the Lord, man. <laughs> you know, a challenge for the Varnagatis kids, you could make a video of me jamming. Not, not me jamming, but like of the name, me jamming. Because a couple, a couple weeks ago when we went through Micmash, they did this great little video on Micmash. So here's your Encore Project uh, video. I want to see a chorus of Varna Gatiss kids jamming. Okay? All right. Verse 8. Maziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. And then in verse 9, the Levites. Yeshua, son of Azaniah. Benui, the sons of Henadad. Kadmiel, and their associates. Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Peliah, Hanan, Micah, Rahob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Bininu, the leaders of the people, Parosh, Pahath Maob, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Azgad, Bebai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Ader, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashem, Bezai, Harif, Anathoth, Nebai, Magbiash, Meshulam, Hezur, Meshezabel, Zadok, Jarua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Ananiah, Hoshea, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Filha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashabana, Masea, Ahaya, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Haram, and Bana. And that's the end of the list. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah, praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Glad he didn't list all the thousands of them. Okay, so once again, 
all scripture is God breed. Why would God give us this big long list of Hebrew names with one Jamaican name thrown in there? What is that all about? What can we possibly learn from this? Well, as we saw in Nehemiah chapter 7, God cares about individual people. Every single person is important to God and is precious in his sight. He's not only the creator of all people, but he's the one who cares for every single person he creates. He doesn't just create them, then step away and say, have a good life. He wants to be involved, fully involved in every aspect of life. Bleeding, bleeding, leading, <laughs> blessing, loving, caring for people, including you. You matter to God and he keeps watch over everything you do. Did you know that the average person has 140,000 hairs on their head? I'm around 60,000 myself and, and going down quickly. But God knows exactly. He can say, you have 137,239 hairs on your head. And he would be exactly right. That's why. why? Because he cares that intimately about you. He cares about people. I heard about a woman named Ethel who would go regularly to the local branch of the post office. And she goes down there one day and there's this enormous line waiting to speak with one of the postal clerks. And an observant person noticed she was just there to buy stamps. And he said, ma'am, you can just go over and buy your stamps from the stamp machine over there. And you won't have to wait in this long line. She said, yes, I could. But the stamp machine won't ask me about my arthritis. <laughs> See, she wanted somebody to care for her. It mattered to her. And people want to know that others care. And you know what? They need to know that God cares for them deeply. So this long list of names, it says that God knows us individually. He cares about us. But it also says something else. It says that God knows where each of us stands in relation to him. He does. And the Bible says that God has a book of life in which are written all the names of those who have eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And if your name is written in that book of life, no one can blot it out, he said. Your name should be, I hope it is, in that book of life. God keeps a detailed record, he knows. So we have all these people. Let's look at the pledge that they make in verses 28 through 39. So 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. This is the start, like the preamble to their contract, their commitment that they're making to the Lord. Now, long before God brought the Israelites back into, into the promised land, into what would become the land of Israel, he warned them about the dangerous idolatry of the people living all around them. And his warning began with 
a warning about their marriage relationships. That was number one. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he said, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your ears away. They will turn your sons away and, uh, from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now remember that in that culture, it was the parents who picked out the, who would be the spouse for their children. It was an arranged marriage. Imagine these parents. They're in the land and they're seeing these people around them. Imagine what might have maybe been going through their head. Why, look at those Canaanite girls. They're, they're kind of cute. They dress really differently, but it's kind of alluring. And they have this way of dancing that's different than our country. And, and no man can resist this. I mean, they really are captivating. And, and who wouldn't love that accent that they have? And, and look at... They're already making eyes at our boys. I mean, they're, they're just, they're meant for each other. What could be wrong with putting together two kids and letting them love each other? How could that be wrong in God's eyes? I can imagine the rationalization that went on as they began to make friends with the communities around them. Maybe they thought, well, little Shemaiah and Sherebiah and Shebaniah, they'll just love these girls. It'll be a good arrangement. Well, listen to God's warning in Deuteronomy 20. He says, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. He told them that up front. It looks okay, but it's dangerous. Don't go there. See, marriage is such an intimate relationship that if you're married to somebody who doesn't share the same values, it's going to be really hard for them not to pull you down. Bad company corrupts good morals. You might think, yeah, but I can, I'm, you know, I'm dating this person. We're going to get married. I'm good. I have a solid foundation in the Lord. I can, I can stand up to this. I'm not going to be swayed or pulled down. Well, that's kind of what Solomon thought too. You know, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And Listen to how he fell into this trap. I'll read you from 1 Kings 11. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Goes on to say, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. And then it says, on a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. These gods, gods, false gods, pagan gods, were so detestable. Worshiping them was some combination of illicit sexual relationships and actually child sacrifice. They would place their children in the arms of these statues and burn them 
supposing that that would then bring financial blessing to the rest of their family. God says this was in, is unimaginable to me. Yet Solomon fell for it. The wisest guy in the world fell for it. And so here, the Israelites, after all they've been through, the, the exile, the return to the land, they finally come to a place of repentance and they commit themselves to separating themselves from the, the pagans and their detestable false gods. Verse 30 says, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. Now, this is just as much a danger for us today as parents, for our children. We have to realize, even for ourselves, that sin is seductive and it's corruptive. It gets to us. I have this word, I call it sinfluence. You won't find it in any dictionary. I kind of made it up. But sinfluence, it highlights the seductive and corruptive nature of sin. See, sin captures our imagination. It appeals to our flesh. And it draws us in. And then before long, the things of God don't matter so much anymore. They're not as important to us. Purity means nothing. Because sin has got a hold of us. There's a very vivid word picture. We know that the scripture says a little leaven leavens the lump. You know, it kind of spreads. There's a better word picture than that in 2 Timothy 2.17. It says, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Now, I'm a, like a visual learner. I like to use pictures to illustrate a point. Not this one. <laughs> this is just gross. Gangrene is skin that rots and dies on the bones of a living person. I couldn't even stand to look at the pictures of it. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. It's gross in the eyes of God. And it will, it will turn a person's heart away from God. And you know what? It'll rot their soul. That's what God's saying. You get connected with these behaviors, it's going to rot your soul and spread throughout your body. See, God calls us to think differently than the world. It doesn't mean that we're to isolate ourselves completely from the world. If we do that, we won't have any influence in the world. So we're not to isolate ourselves, but we're to be insulated. We're not to take on the immoral behaviors of the world. And we're not to hang out with people who call themselves believers, but are sinful in the sense of embracing and, and even celebrating sin. So we're not to isolate ourselves. We're to be in the world, but not of the world. And the first area highlighted in this commitment is that of marriage. It's the closest of all human relationships. And even today, God says, do not be unequally yoked. Now, a yoke was like a wooden harness that they put over animals for pulling a load. And if you have two animals with a different mindset, then they're going to be pulling in different directions. And think of all the places where the values and choices of a believing and unbelieving spouse will come in conflict. Your choice of friends, your choice of your children's education, how you manage your finances, how you spend your time. Where you place your priorities, how you approach big decisions, on and on. They're going to be pulling in different directions. 
if you have a, a believer married to an unbeliever. It's going to be pulling in different directions morally and spiritually. And so God tells us not to be unequally yoked. Now, if you're already married to a spouse who's not a believer, you're not to leave them. You're to remain in that marriage as long as that unbelieving spouse will allow it. But if you're not yet married and you're pursuing a relationship with an unbeliever, God says, separate yourself. Don't do that. If you're unsure, well, you know, they kind of talk about God. But I don't, I don't know if they're really a believer. Well, yeah, I'll say they're a believer. I mean, their parents go to church. So if, if you're not sure, here's a good test. Any relationship that is of God will draw us closer to God. So when you spend time with this person, does it draw you into closer fellowship with God? Do you pray together? Do you spur one another on toward loving good deeds? Or do you find yourself doing things that you shouldn't be doing? See, the Israelites intermarried and they were drawn away from the Lord. But now they're making the kind of late but very important decision to separate themselves. So personal relationships, in particular marriage, are the first area that they address. And the next comes business relationships. Take a look at verse 31. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. See, those are their business relationships now. They're commerce. And God had commanded the Israelites to make the last day of the week a day of rest and worship. And he calls it the Sabbath. The word Sabbath means to cease or to rest. So every week, they would have one day of rest and worship. And then every seven years, there was to be a Sabbath year. And this was a year of rest for the land. They were to plow and plant crops and prune their vines six years. But on the seventh year, they weren't to do that. Now, if it produced anything, they could harvest it. But they couldn't plow and they couldn't plant and they couldn't prune and care for the land. It was to have a Sabbath rest. But again, Israel hadn't been doing this in a long time. In fact, one of the reasons why God took them into exile for 70 years is because they hadn't been doing this for 490 years. That's 70 groups of seven years. And so he says, you haven't been doing this. You owe me 70 years. And he says this, that the land is going to enjoy its Sabbath rest while you're locked up in Babylon. Not just my words, 2 Chronicles 36. He carried them into exile in Babylon until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of its desolation, it rested until the 70 years were complete in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. God, God serious about these, these rules, these commandments for his people, for the Israelites. And so... The Israelites had been conducting business as usual, supposing maybe they'll get ahead. I know God says that we should not work and not trade and buy stuff and sell stuff on Sunday but, or Saturday. For them, what's it going to hurt? 
You know, we can get ahead. This is a fledgling business we started, and we need to, we need to make sure it gets off the ground. After all, if it fails, well, I'm not going to have any income. I can't give to the Lord. I can't raise my children in the training and admonition of the Lord without some funding, so I'll just do this. You can see how you can kind of rationalize this. So they did rationalize it, but... God had promised them that if they honor his word, if they're obedient to it, he would provide everything they need to make it through that time of rest. They not only get to rest, but they have an abundance of provision. Listen to this, Leviticus 25. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? Yeah, I'd be thinking that too. What are we going to eat, God, in the seventh year? He says, I will send such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. With obedience comes blessing God would provide. So this became a matter of trust and obedience for the Israelites. Did they really trust that if they rested, God would provide everything they need? Did they believe that? They didn't for too long. But in Nehemiah 10, they're recommitting themselves to trusting and obeying God and his word. And verse 31 says, when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Think about the testimony this was to those pagan nations. Look, we, God tells us to rest. We're going to do it. And he's going to bless us above and beyond what we would have received by conducting this business on the Sabbath. Well, what about us today? Do we trust and obey his word in every area of our lives? Now, the Sabbath is not a command for the New Testament church. It's not. We're, we don't live under that. But the principle of rest is still a good one. And we find it even in the New Testament. It used to be a common practice in the United States that businesses were closed on Sundays. Remember that? They had the blue laws in Texas. There were things you couldn't buy on a Sunday. Well, still, some businesses do this today. Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A are a couple good examples. They're closed on Sunday. Chick-fil-A is a perfect example. They say, and so does Hobby Lobby, that they want their employees to have a day of rest and time to worship and time to be with their families. They use those three words, rest, worship, family. I think it's really cool. Now, these chickens, by the way, are committed. <laughs> You're not getting eggs at Chick-fil-A. But I find it interesting that it doesn't seem to hurt their business, only being open six days a week. In fact, Chick-fil-A, get this, makes more revenue per store than McDonald's, Starbucks, and Subway combined. Isn't that cool? They make almost twice as much per store on average as McDonald's, four times as much as Starbucks, and ten times as much as Subway. You do know that when God closes a window, he opens a Chick-fil-A, right? <laughs> I heard that somewhere. 
Well, a popular franchising website tried to figure out how is it that Chick-fil-A can make so much revenue in just six days a week. And so they suggested three possibilities. One, closing creates a craving. So like today, you're going, oh, I need that Chick-fil-A. I'm going to go there on Monday. Maybe. Number two, it helps attract better employees. Probably does. Number three, it's customers appreciate the mindfulness. Well, that could be, but you know what? I think there's a fourth possibility, too, that they're just not able to, they can't get their mind around it, and they don't print. How about this, that they're honoring the Lord, and the Lord is blessing them in response. How about that? I'm for number four. Well, again, we're not required to keep the Sabbath. And there's no record of the New Testament church you know, uh, celebrating the Sabbath the way they did in the Old Testament. But the idea of having a day of rest in worship is still important. It's still good. God rested after creation. That was the model for the Sabbath. Six days he created and on the seventh day he worked. I know some people who work seven days a week at multiple jobs. They don't have time for worship. And guess what? They're struggling financially. Do you think there's a point of self-evaluation and maybe repentance and commitment that's needed there. God, I'm going to take you at your word. You say, seek first the kingdom of God and you'll take care of this other stuff. I'm going to take you at your word. I'm going to let this job go. I'm going to go worship you. I'm going to fellowship with your people and I'm going to watch you bless me in response. See, that's the heart of God. We need to trust in the goodness of God. We need to obey his word. So the Israelites committed to obeying God in their business relationships. And then uh, we move on to the provisions for the temple in verse 32. It says, we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God. For the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. Okay, so what's going on here? This is the upkeep of the temple. It's to keep the temple going. Remember, the Levites, they couldn't have a regular job. They didn't have any land. They were supported by the other people so that they could carry on the functions there at the temple. And this was very important to God because the temple was the physical dwelling place of God on earth in the midst, amidst the nation of Israel. And it was also the center of their corporate worship. Now, remember how the wall laid in ruins for like 100 years after the Israelites returned until Nehemiah began this program to restore it? Well, 100 years before that, the temple lay in ruins too. And it was eventually rebuilt uh, under the ministry of, of Haggai. And listen to what, listen to the passion God has for his house in Haggai chapter 1. It says, then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? 
Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Taxes. <laughs> you, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. See, they're, they're fixing up their place. They got back in the land. It looked good. But the house of the Lord is in shambles. And God says, you, is it right for you to live like that when my house is still in ruins? And so the people had neglected it. And now they, they did rebuild it. They restored the temple. But they still needed resources to ensure the smooth functioning of the temple. And that's what they're committing to here in Nehemiah 10. Now we know that today... The house of God, as it's called, is not a physical building. It's not. It's a spiritual building. And the people of God, the church, are his dwelling place, spiritually. But we still have a building, which is the center of our corporate worship. And so God also cares about that. Um, we're, not, we're not talking about a crystal cathedral. I think that's just... It's just detestable to me to see such opulence like that. But a place where we can come that's not falling apart. And we can worship the Lord. And we can study his word. And we can gather together. And we can invite the community in. And we can minister to them. That's important. That's why I'm so, it's such a blessing to see what's been happening to our facility as it's being renovated and just made more useful in the Sunday school and, and yes, the bathrooms too. It's a wonderful thing. Now, Warren Wearsby had a quote. I'll try to find it here for you. I really like what he said, had to say. He said, the way we care for those buildings says something about what we think of our God. I think that's true. Again, the building is not the dwelling place of God per se, but it's still important. It's our place of corporate worship and it's a witness, a testimony to the community. So they're talking about the operation of the church. Now we don't need to bring wood and grain and animals for sacrifice, but we do have to pay the utilities. We do have to pay insurance. We do have a small staff, three, and we have salaries and healthcare and all that kind of thing. That in a similar way is providing for the function of the church, of the body of Christ. And it's, again, the way we can minister to one another and to our community. So they, they talk about the provision for the temple, and then that brings us to the final category. They commit themselves to regular tithes and offerings. It says in verse 35, we also resume responsibility, responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our son and of our cattle, of our herds and of our fields to the house of our God, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priest, the first fruits of our, of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the first fruits of, our, of all our trees, and of the new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of your crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes 
in all the towns where we work. So we already talked about tithes back in Nehemiah chapter 7. Tithe means tenth. Israel actually had two to three tithes a year. It was about two, two and a third tithes. One was only every third year. They gave a lot to the Lord. And on top of that, they had their free will offerings. We are not under the command to tithe in the New Testament. But there are principles of giving. We talked about them last time. I'm not going to go into any detail. But the principles of giving for the New Testament church is that we're to give generously, willingly, joyfully, and proportionally to what the Lord gives to us. Those are the principles. And when we do that, this type of giving, it's a blessing. It's not a burden. And what it says is that we've reached a place in our spiritual life where we're trusting in the goodness and the promises of God to provide for us. I can release this because God is going to take care of me. I believe that. I don't just say that. I don't just sing that. I believe that. And I'm showing this to the Lord by how I respond to that. That's why God loves a cheerful giver. He says, there is a child who's trusting in me as their heavenly father. So, now an interesting aside is that even, it talks about the first fruits, giving the first and the best of all that you have. Even that pointed forward to Christ. It's a cool thing. Rather than a, a harvest of grain or fruit, it's talking about a harvest of souls. And 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Isn't that cool? Because of his sacrifice once for all, we too will be raised to life and we can stand in the presence of God. So then there's these last couple of verses. They just speak of the practical way in which these offerings were to be handled. Verse 38 a priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles of the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. So all this started when they began reading the word of God and explaining it. This is God's word to you. And this is what it means. And when they looked at all that God had done for them and when they looked at their past response to God and their rebellion, the result was repentance. Repentance, changing their mind, changing the way they think, which results in changing the way they live, their direction. Now, they were committed. They were committed to moving forward in obedience to God and his word. They're putting the past behind. God, we confess that. We repent. We're not doing that anymore. We learned our lesson and we're committing to moving forward and we're signing our name that we are going to obey the Lord and his word. They were, they were trusting their livelihood to the God who cares for them. Now, what about us? What things should we be committed to as the New Testament church? 
We know that many of these things in the Old Testament don't apply to us. We already saw that. The animal sacrifices and the bringing of the wood and the temple, that does not apply to us. Many of those were only for Israel as a nation specifically, and others were fulfilled in Christ. So what things are we to be committed to? Well, I want to take just the last couple minutes and look at quickly at a document that we went over. It was actually, I think it was a New Year's message two years ago, and you'll find it in your bulletin. Look there. You should find a paper that says, Our Declaration of Commitment. And this is, maybe you've never seen this before. It's in our, our information packets as a, as a church. But it's a really important and helpful tool, I believe, for each one of us. What, should, what does commitment to the Lord look like today for us as New Testament believers? Well, it begins with this introduction, our preamble. In the scriptures, God repeatedly calls his followers to a life of spiritual and personal commitment. Riverside Community Church does not emphasize formal membership in an organization. That's not what we mean by commitment, sign on the dotted line. But we do encourage each person within our church family to affirm his or her commitment to God and to one another. As we live and serve together in faith and love, the following declaration serves as an expression of that commitment. I affirm my attention to live out the following commitments as the Lord enables me and as the Lord enables me to grow in them. And then there's a list of 10 things here. Let's just look quickly at what that is. Number one, to worship and love the Lord, love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and might. This is God's number one commandment. Our whole life is to be an act of worship, but that doesn't exclude the importance of corporate worship when we come together as one body to worship the Lord. Remember from a couple weeks ago, worship causes us to remember who God is and it gives us a right perspective on him and on ourselves. Worship is important and so it needs to begin there. Secondly, to walk. To walk in a personal relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. It means spending time with the Lord, enjoying the Lord, time in his word, time in prayer. Third, to change increasingly into the likeness of my Savior, Jesus Christ, as he enables me. The Christian life is all about change, becoming less like our old selves, becoming more like Jesus Christ. We shouldn't stagnate. We should, we're never going to be perfect, but we should be making progress in Christ's likeness. Number four, to relate to my fellow believers in this body and to regularly assemble with them for worship, teaching, and fellowship. That should be one of the highest priorities on our calendar each week is the time we spend together as a body of believers. Number five, to love my fellow believers in this body through obedience to the one and other commands of the New Testament and to love lost people in this world. And some of those one another's are hard when you read them. The way we're to act toward one another. But then also our responsibility to others around the world. We heard about it this morning with the Kids Club and with Compassion International. This is part of our commitment to God today. We don't bring wood for a burnt offering. But we worship the God through these types of, we worship God through these types of commitments. Um, number six, to serve, faithfully utilizing my gifts and time in ministry with my fellow members of the body and as an individual. 
Rick Warren said this. He said that spiritual maturity occurs when we take off the bib and put on an apron. I like that. We grow up and we begin serving one another. When we serve one another, we're serving the Lord. Number seven, to give sacrificially to support the work of Christ in this body and through it to uh, mission work throughout the world. That's our responsibility and our privilege as believers. Number eight, to shine as a light in a dark world through Christ-like character and deep involvement in my world. Number nine, to witness, attempting by word, deed, and prayer to lead others to the obedience of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And then 10, to live in harmony with my fellow believer, with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ um, in this church and to walk in submission to the shepherding of the elders. Those are 10 commitments that we believe are important in our lives as followers of Christ. And so, as we wrap this up, how do we move forward from here? What does that look like for us? I think first we should consider this. How am I allowing an ungodly world to influence the way I think and act? Where is the world creeping in on my life and conforming me to its ungodly image. That's something we should really think about. I'm sure there's places, as you look at this list, there's places where we're all probably doing pretty good. And there's places where we go, oh, yeah, I've been neglecting that one. I haven't been focusing on that. I need to, I need to think about that. I need to maybe spend some time with the Lord, and there's probably some things that every one of us needs to repent of. Lord, that hasn't been right. When I look at what you say in your word and what you want for my life, this is not what I've been doing. And I confess that. I repent. Forgive me, God. And guess what? God is gracious and faithful and forgiving, and he will forgive us. And we'll return to a place of blessing in that area. And then we need to commit ourselves to moving forward committed to obedience to God and to his word. So let me just encourage you to take this. I think it's a pretty complete list. There could be others. This was made, this predates me, but I think it's pretty good. Maybe take that and spend some time this week looking those over and seeing, where am I? Maybe rate yourself on each of those. You can't do everything at once, but maybe circle a few that you would say, these are probably the most important need in my life right now. I need to change. I need to grow in this area. And then confess that to the Lord, just like Nehemiah and the people did. Repent of that and ask his forgiveness. And then make a commitment to move forward in obedience to the Lord and to his word. Can we do that as a church? Let's pray. We'll need help. Heavenly Father, you are our help. In your word, it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates us, and it judges our thoughts and, our, and the attitudes of our heart, God. We can't escape it. And God, we don't want to escape it. We want to allow your word to do its refining work in us, like a surgeon. To cut out those parts of our life that are unpleasing to you. That we could replace them with the fruit of the spirit. With your work in our lives, God. So show us these areas where we've been conforming to an ungodly world. When we should, in fact, be separating ourselves 
from them. God, point these out so that we can repent and we can seek your forgiveness. And then help us to move forward with a, a new commitment to obedience. And give us the strength to live it out, God, by your spirit and for your glory. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.